I want to share this verse with you in, in, in Esther chapter 9. It says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar year by year as the days in which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as a month that had been turned from the, for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. So here's what's interesting. If you read all of chapter 8 and, ha- and the first half of chapter 9, it says the Jews, by God's hand, was able to kill all the men, women, and children who had tried to attack them. And what I think is interesting, if you're cynical, like I am, or if you're thinking, like I'm thinking, your first question might be is, if God's pulling the strings on this thing, why is it that God's telling, telling the Jews to not only defend themselves, but kill the men, women, and children? Raise your hand if you're thinking that, in a sense. It seems as if the Bible is always telling us to kill women and children. Do you know? I mean, I could give you more verses where the God is always saying, kill them all, men, women, and children, and cattle. (laughs) And what is that all about? And then how, in the very next verse, these Jews are throwing a party. Woo, party! Because it was on this day that we found relief from our enemies. Yeah, but you killed them. And the women and the children. So this is what I want to talk about tonight. That's the story where we are at, where we're at. And I want to answer this question. What are we, as Christians, supposed to do with our enemies? You have enemies. I know you do. Raise your hand if you have enemies. (laughs) Raise your hand. I just said it like Josiah does. Raise your hand if you have enemies. See, I told you. I knew you did. Raise your hand if they're in the room. (laughs) Okay, all right. I've worked in the church most of my life, and so I'll tell you, most of my enemies are Christians, are believers. Um, So we have enemies. How is it that we can get rest from our enemies? How is it that we, how are we supposed to deal with our enemies? This verse says something fascinating. It says, they're going to celebrate this day as a day in which they found relief from their enemies. And that word relief in Hebrew is a very strong word, and it literally means rest. I shall give you rest from your enemies, God says. And so I want to show you why that's important. Because on this day, they are in fact getting rest from their enemies. You'll never have rest until you have rest from your enemy. Amen? Because you, you, may, you may be on vacation, but you're still thinking about your enemy. Have you done that? Yep. You're still thinking about how they hurt you, how they wronged you, and how you want to get them. So here's what I want to do tonight. I want to talk about what are we supposed to do with our enemies. And what I would like to do is I've devised this time machine, and I'd like to go back in time. Here, here's, here's the three points to the three-point sermon. We're going to go back to time even before Esther, okay, to the, to the beginning of the Jewish people. And we're going to see how God gives rest to Esther and to the Jews from their enemies, okay? Then I want to go back to the future, if you will, to the time of Christ, where Jesus shows us how he gives us rest from our enemies. And then I want to go back to today, to the present, and ask ourselves, how does the cross, how does the gospel give us rest from our enemies? Make sense? Basically, Old Testament, New Testament, present day. That's what we're going to do. So let's go back in time to Esther's day, before Esther's day. Um, But before we do, I I want to do a quick plug, announcement. This is our second to the last message in this series. And what they're celebrating here 
for the rest that they received is today called Purim. And we're going to read about that next week quite a bit. And what I want to do next week is a Purim party. In other words, I've been doing some research on Purim. I could stand here and tell you, this is what they do at Purim, okay? And this is how things roll out at Purim. Or what we could do instead is say, let me show you what they do at Purim and let's have a Purim party. So what I want to do is do a mini Purim here at Missio Day, which means two things. We're going to eat food and we're going to get dressed up and we're going to party, okay? So what I'd like, for, um, the reason why I'm telling you this now is next week I want you to come prepared, dress up. What does that mean? Whatever, whatever you think it means. It, when, they, when they celebrate Purim, they actually dress up in masquerades and costumes. Sometimes they dress up like Haman, or sometimes they dress up like Esther. Uh, in the original days, 2,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago, they would dress up like Esther characters. Today, they dress up like Batman and Spider-Man and all that stuff. And the reason why is because they're saying the whole story of Esther is about Esther being hidden, God being hidden in these circumstances. And so you can dress up and you yourself are kind of hidden behind the mask of Spider-Man or whatever you want to dress up as. So in order to make it really fun, I thought I should tell you in advance, come dressed up. Dress up as you want. Wear a kilt, wear, wear a dress, wear a suit, Wear something appropriate, okay? <laughs> Not inappropriate. And then the other thing is I want you to bring hors d'oeuvres or appetizers because we're going to party. And I need at least one or two ladies or men to volunteer to make Haman cookies. These are real Jewish cookies. Um, they're called Haman. I'm, in English, I'm calling them Haman cookies. They're, they're another word in Hebrew. But basically, we're going to eat them, you know, and crush Haman with our jaws. <laughs> so if you, if you would like to make these cookies, the recipe is found on the Internet. Very simple cookies. Um, and I'd like to have some Haman cookies. So volunteer with me laugh afterwards for Haman cookies. Next week, our grand finale of this series is going to be grand, I promise. So let's get in our time machine. Let's go back in time. What sound effect should we make for our time machine, Will? Okay, here we are. We're in, we're in our time machine. All right. Come with me to the days of Egypt. And the Israelites are in Egypt and they are experiencing the opposite of rest. 430 years of slavery. Can you imagine that? 430 years of slavery. And this is harsh slavery. They were whipped, they were beaten, they were forced to make huge bricks. In fact, it was so bad for them there that even at one time, they were, the women were forced to throw their babies in the Nile River. Can you imagine that? Because of overpopulation. How horrible is that? They, these people just want to get out. They want rest. So God hears their cry and he says, I promise you, I'm going to promise you some rest. I'm going to promise you rest from your enemies. In fact, I'm going to promise you a place in which you'll be protected from your enemies. And we're going to call that promised place the promised place. <laughs> we're going to call it the promised land. And when you get there, you're going to have rest from your enemies. If you read Exodus, if you read Deuteronomy, this is the language of God. I want to give you rest, but God knows that in order for you to have rest, you have to have that rest from the enemy. So here's the Jewish people. They're leaving Egypt and they're walking in the desert. Oh. And as they're walking in the desert with their eyes set on this place of rest, there's this nomadic group of people who are running around in the desert and they're picking off the weak ones at the end of the line. Did you know this? Here's what's happening. 
as Israel is moving in this long line through the desert, those people at the back of the line are sick and tired and old. You know what I mean? All the old uh, retired people. Um, they're, I'm just kidding with you. They're, they're, they're just, they're lagging behind. 430 years of slavery. How tired do you think you would be? And now you're going through the hot desert. You're tired. And these people are saying, let's get the easy weak ones. Let's just pick them off. And this made God very mad. God said, these are my people. I'm trying to give them rest. And you're picking off the easy prey at the end of the line. And at that moment, God declares war forever on that group of people. I want you to hear this. That group of people that were attacking God's people when he was leading them to rest, God says, you're the first group of people who came up against my people. And from now on, I'm declaring war against you from generation to generation to generation forever. Does anyone know the name of those people? Let me show you. The name of those people are called the Amalekites. God says to Moses, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and how he cut off your tail. That's the end of the line. Those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you your rest, here's God casting vision for his people. I'm going to give you the rest. You're going to get it. When, he, when I give you that rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord has promised you as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Am Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. <laughs> I think that's kind of funny. Don't forget to block him out of memory. <laughs> Did we block him out of memory? I don't know. I forgot. He said, don't forget. I know, but I blocked him out of my memory. <laughs> you guys don't think that's funny? <laughs> I think it's funny. <laughs> it's not funny. You're right. God is mad at these people. So God declares war on the Amalekites. The Amalekites become the enemy of God from this day forward. We skip ahead. Let's skip ahead a few hundred years. Do you remember King Saul? First king of Israel. He's getting ready to go into a battle, and he's getting ready to, to fight the Amalekites. And so Saul gets an opportunity to do what God told him to do. Block him out of your memory. And here's what happens. Samuel, that's the prophet, that's the priest of that day, goes to Saul the king. And he says, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. So here's God again being angry, and he wants to kill babies. How many times you get a conversation with someone and they say, the reason why I can't believe in Christianity is because God wants to kill babies. And yet we're the ones standing in the picket lines yelling at everyone else for killing babies. But the Old Testament says it. Why? Because God says, this is my enemy. And in order for me to give you rest from your enemies, we must wipe out from memory the enemies. We've got to destroy them completely. Imagine this. You're so tired. You've been in slavery. And now you're in the desert and you're just, where is this place you speak of called rest? I want to go to there, <laughs> you know, and you're so tired. And then you can't even get too tired because as soon as you get too tired, you know you're going to fall in the back of the line. And then you're going to die. You're like, oh, I can't even stop or I'm going to die. Have you ever felt that way? Sometimes I feel that way when I'm riding a bus. You know what I mean? You're like, I just want to sleep. Just go. I just can't sleep. <laughs> or youth camp or whatever for lock-ins. Please just let me sleep. I want to shoot somebody. <laughs> God is saying, 
I'm going to kill those people. I'm going to destroy them all because they're my enemy. Here's what I want you to see. Here's, the, here's what's really cool. From this moment on, from Deuteronomy, even still today, the Amalekites, say that with me, Amalekites. Amalekites are a paradigm for the people who are the enemies of God. Does that make sense? So anyone who's an enemy of God is called an Amalekite. Whether they're really an Amalekite or not, doesn't matter. You might not have known this. Today, the Jews still call the Nazis, guess what they call them? Amalekites. Because if you're an enemy of God, you're an Amalekite. And what's God going to do to his enemies? Kill, kill them so that we can have rest. Did you catch the name of the king that Samuel was supposed to kill? Agag. Kill Agag. Do you remember what Haman is? An Agagite. Haman is from the lineage of the Amalekites. And God is saying at the end of Esther chapter 9, they're celebrating with this huge feast because God has finally given them rest from their enemies. Do you see that? It's pretty powerful. Here's what one commentator says. The Amalekites as a people, men, women, and children are paradigmatic, which means they're a paradigm in biblical theology as the enemies of God's people. Anytime you see the word Amalekite, these are the enemies of God's people. Why is Esther celebrating so much? Because Haman and his 10 sons and all these people have been destroyed, men, women, and children, and God is giving them rest from their enemies. That's what it said, right? They're celebrating because on this day they got relief, rest from their enemies. It's pretty cool if you ask me. But let's be honest. Did they get rest from their enemies? Nope. A guy named Hitler is going to come later. Even more than that, you know, the, Arme um, the Assyrians. It, you, so, so God wipes out their enemies. They get rest. But guess what? Another one pops up. And now God's going to, a new Amalekite pops up. And God's going to have, so there's this perpetual fight against our enemies. Are we ever going to get rest? Are we ever going to get rest? I want some rest. And the last half of the Old Testament are the prophets. And in every single one of those prophets, they're saying, God's going to bring his son. And his son is going to give us, you know, you know what? He's going to give us, right? He's going to give us peace. He's going to be the prince of peace. They're not going to talk of war no more, no more, no more. It's going to be no more enemies. And so that takes us back into our time machine so we can go back to the time of Jesus. Would you like to do that? Let's get in. What is the noise again? The rant. I was a little lame. The flux capacitors kind of breaking down on us. Okay, now we're back in Jesus' day. Let me paint this picture for you. Here's Jesus walking around and he's talking to people and he's developing a following. He's got lots of followers, a crowd. Part of the reason why he has a crowd is because he says things like this. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hey, are you tired? Don't worry. Even if you're going to fall back at the end of the line, I'm going to give you rest. Are you at the end of the line? I'm going to give you rest. He calls himself the son of man, the son of God. And pretty soon people are following him. And you know what they're thinking? You can bet your right bottom dollar what they're thinking is, this man's going to bring us rest. This is the Messiah, the son of God, the son of man. He's going to destroy the Romans. New enemy. Did you catch that? A new enemy is up and around. He's going to destroy the Romans and we're going to get rest. And if you read the Gospels, this is happening all the time. Um, Jesus' disciples are always saying things like, when are we going to kill him? <laughs> I kind of see Peter's this redneck saying, let's shoot him, let's kill him. Here's a, here's a funny one. At one time, they're standing there. Jesus is, 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 is visibly angry, and Peter says, 
Lord, would you like me to call fire down from heaven and destroy them like Elijah did in the good old days when God actually gave us rest? I read that and I'm thinking, has Peter ever done that before? How does he know he's going to do that? Lord, would you like me to call fire from heaven? He's like, yeah, go ahead and do it. <laughs> That's, that would have been a funny joke, right? If Jesus said, yeah, go for it. I mean, let's step back, y'all. <laughs> Peter's new at this. <laughs> Instead, Jesus says, what is up with the fire? You guys are so bloodthirsty. No, we're not going to destroy your enemies. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to love your enemies. I want you to, I want you to pray for those who persecute you. I want you to forgive them. How many times? Well, say 70 times seven. How about that, Peter? Are you getting the picture here? I want you to love your enemies. I want you to forgive your enemies. I want you to pray for your enemies. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this, but if I were Peter, I'd be like, that's cheap. I'm praying for my enemies. You're supposed to give me rest. This is a cheap shot. You know what I mean? I I was promised rest. No, I want you to pray for them. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay, okay. can I just be you? I've been there before. Right? I've got an enemy. I can't sleep. I'm so angry. I'm so mad. I want to get them. And then someone says, well, you know, you need to love them. No, so don't give me the love stuff. I want to get them. They deserve, they can't take advantage of the fact that I'm a Christian. I'm supposed to love them. Raise your hand if you've ever been there. Or I'm, am I the only twisted person? Okay, cool. Good. So Jesus says, I want you to love them. So here's my question. How is it that Jesus is giving rest to our enemies when he tells us to love them? All right, so here's the last scene. Jesus is in the garden. He's praying. All right, God, I'm getting ready to go to this place that you told me to go to. Disciples are sleeping. Here comes Judas, the traitor. Who wants Judas to get it? I I want Judas to get it. (laughs) Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. I want him to get it. Peter does too. And Peter's thinking, I think this is the moment now. It's now or never. If Jesus has come to give us rest against our enemies, then let's kill him. And he pulls out his sword and he starts swiping. And Jesus says, Peter, Peter, enough with the fire, okay? Put away your sword. And he gives his life. And he says, take me. And they take him and they kill him. And as they're killing him, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So Jesus actually backs his words up and he prays for those who persecute him. So this is altogether a different kind of rest from our enemies. How is Jesus giving us rest from our enemies? Why is it that in the Old Testament, God says, kill them, men, women, and children, and infants, and ox, and donkey. And in the New Testament, Jesus says, y'all just love. Have you ever heard this before? In the Old Testament, God is an angry tyrant who wants us to kill children. In the New Testament, he's a hippie, and he just wants us to love our enemies. Old Testament, kill thine enemies. New Testament, love your enemies. Do you see the contrast? Is it a contradiction? It feels like one, doesn't it? But can I tell you, it's not. If you can follow me on this, it's not a contradiction. It's actually, Jesus is actually kicking it up a knot. He's spinning it upward and he's making it complete. Let me show you how. Here's what Timothy Keller says. What we have on the cross That is, Jesus loving his enemies, forgiving his enemies, dying for his enemies, is the ultimate warfare. Listen to that word, ultimate warfare. If you know anything about warfare, you know, it's a strategy, it's a game, it's a goal. How do we get them? The cross is God's strategy, his goal. How do we get them? Ultimate warfare on evil, and it brings the ultimate rest from our enemies. Why? Because Jesus... 
on the cross is not just giving us rest from our enemies. He's not just destroying our enemies. That's been done before. Destroy the enemy, another one pops up. Destroy the enemy, another one pops up. Jesus is giving us rest. He's destroying, and I want you to follow this. It's going to be tricky. Not just the enemy, but the enmity. What's enmity? Enmity is another way of saying is hostility or friction or tension. So you've got two enemies, the Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the Romans. How do, you, how do the Jews get rest from their enemies? Destroy their enemy. Now they have rest. But that doesn't work because one always pops up again. So God says, instead of destroying the enemy, let's destroy the thing that's between the enemy called enmity, called hostility. Now you've got rest from your enemies. And no one has to die. And this is radical. This, this is actually revolutionary. How do you destroy enmity? The cross. Ephesians 2 says, on the cross, Jesus slaughtered, he destroyed enemy. And so now two enemies can have peace. Even enemies like the Jews and the Gentiles can live in peace with one another. Jesus says, I want you to love your enemy. How do you destroy the enemy? The best way to get rid of your enemy, the best way to have peace, to have rest from your enemy is to make your enemy your friend. Remove the enmity. Now you have no enemy. And now you have rest. Do you see that? Listen to what Keller says. When you fight evil with evil, you don't beat evil. Evil wins. Did you catch that? When you fight evil with evil, you don't beat evil. Evil wins. Here's how this flushes out. You get angry, right? You have enemies. And when your enemy hurts you, you want to hurt them back. And harder. <laughs> Isn't that what they say about revenge? Revenge is harder. Revenge is bad. I don't know what they say. There's a cliche there somewhere. Um, revenge is bad. <laughs> you want to get them harder. So here's what happens. Your enemy hits you, you hit him harder, and they fall. What do you have at that moment? Some rest. Some rest from your enemy. But your enemy is going to get back up. Or if you kill him, then you get a little bit more rest, but eventually their children are going to rise up. Or their children's children are going to rise up. Because what you've done when you hit them, you know how this works, right? You've seen the Godfather. The, the, the children come up and get you. What you've done is you've You've not destroyed the enemy, you've increased the enmity, and now when the children rise up or when the guy that you hit comes back up again, now he's more angry, more mad, and evil wins. You can't fight evil with evil, you have to fight evil with a different kind of weapon, a different kind of weapon altogether. In fact, I, I'm just going to borrow this from Timothy Keller because I like it a lot. He says you have to fight him with a different kind of violence, and it's the violence of grace. The violence, think about that, the violence of grace. Why is grace violent? Raise your hand if you think grace is violent. <laughs> okay, here, let's do this. Uh, I'm, this is off script. Um, let's talk. Why, what, where do you think I'm going with this? How is grace violent? How can you imagine grace being violent? Take, take about two minutes. I don't have a clock on here because I just came up with this. T take about two minutes to discuss that at your table. How is grace violent? It's not mamby-pamby, oh, Jesus is love. It's grace, and grace is violent. And if you've ever experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. It shakes you to your core. What would happen if your enemy gave you grace? Oh, don't you dare get all high and mighty on me. What would happen if you gave your enemy grace? It's violent. It shakes. It changes things. 
And if that grace is as violent and as strong as it is, and it destroys the enmity, I mean, if it takes war to destroy an enemy, it's going to take the cross to destroy enmity. It's amazing. So that's how Jesus gives us rest from our enemies. But we're going to get back in our time machine and go back to the future again, I guess, to the future, today, to today. And you still have enemies. So if God destroyed the Amalekites and if Jesus destroyed the enmity, why is it that you and I still have enemies? Don't think for a second that Jesus isn't, doesn't believe in all this hell and wrath and punishment because he does. That's why he gave his life. That's why he's fighting against the enmity. And there will always be enemies of the cross. And Revelation tells us he will destroy those enemies. But Jesus has given us the gospel. And that gospel is violent. And it is power. And it is active in your life. So how does that gospel give you rest from your real enemies today? And just real quickly, I want to I just give a couple of reasons. And I'm just going to borrow these from Keller. Um, two reasons. The first reason is it humbles you. And the second reason is it makes you confident. That's kind of funny, isn't it? Humbles you and makes you confident. First, the gospel humbles you. And here's why. If you truly understand the gospel, and that is that in order for God to save you, in order to God to remove the enmity between you and he, he had to die on a violent cross for you. If you really get that, Jesus died died for me because my enmity towards God was so strong, then you become humbled. Wow. That's how strong it was? Jesus had to die? And once you're humbled, now you can't hate anyone because a humble person can't hate. An enemy comes to you and is mean to you, hits you, pushes you. Your immediate response is, you! But then if you're humbled by the gospel, you say, are just like me and I got grace. I must give you grace. And so then what ends up happening is the evil, the enemy, has no foothold on you. you. In other words, the enemy can't make you hate them. Although it's real easy to make someone hate you. <laughs> Can I just get an amen on that? All you got to do is push their button, and then they're going to hate you. But if you've been humbled by the gospel, and I push your button, you're going to say, Mike, I'm going to pray for you. I love you, and I forgive you. And I can't make you hate me. I'll push all your buttons and you just keep coming back with, forgive you, I love you, I'm praying for you. And evil cannot get a hold on you. The cycle has been broken. You broke the cycle. If you hate your enemies, you don't know that you're a sinner saved by grace. That's just the truth. If you, if you hate your enemies, you don't know that you're a sinner saved by grace. And as a result, you're vulnerable and you don't have rest from your enemies. It's because if you hate them, then now you don't have rest. <laughs> Your enemy can destroy your life and control you enormously. They know how to push your buttons. So the gospel gives us humility, which gives us power over our enemies so that they can't control us. And then we have rest, true rest. Imagine it. None of your enemies could control you. None of your enemies could push your buttons because you have the power of, and the violence of grace in your life. That's amazing. Okay, so the second thing it does is it gives you confidence. And the confidence that it gives you is this. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. 
Jesus died for you. He purchased you. You're his. You're a child of God. You are an heir to the kingdom. You have an inheritance in heaven. The way I like to tell when I was a youth pastor, the kids is you're a prince and you're a princess. That's what an heir to a kingdom is, right? You're a prince and a princess. Doesn't that give you confidence? Should. God loves you that much. And if, and if you truly believe that, and if your identity is found in that, then your enemies can't touch you. And let me explain why. Because most of us don't find our identity in that. Most of us find our identity in something completely different. Some people find their identity in um, their, their, their wealth, their, their possessions. Believe it or not. People actually put their identity in what they have. That was actually really funny, by the way. <laughs> because we live in America, and that's where probably 98% of us put our identity. Our worth is found in our net worth. What, 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 what um, have I put aside? What protection have I provided for me and my family? That's how I know if I'm valuable. Guess what happens when you put your worth in your net worth? Guess what happens when you put your identity in your stuff? Your enemies can get you. They can touch your stuff. They can take your stuff. They can, they can affect your bottom line. And now you've got enemies. You don't have rest. You can't have rest if your value is in your wealth because someone's always after it, especially since everyone else puts their value in their wealth. <laughs> but... If you truly believe what Jesus said and you store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, then they can't touch it. No, this is radical. <laughs> this is revolutionary, and yet it hasn't affected us as it should. If you really say, to heck with this stuff. My treasure's in heaven, and I'm going to do all that I can to build treasure in heaven. Then your enemy comes and says, I'm going to take your stuff. You say, take it. My treasure's in heaven. You can't touch it. That's why Jesus said, look, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And his enemies hated it because they couldn't get to him. We don't even know who he is, where he's from. I got no money. We can't, oh, we can't do anything. Oh, what was I? I'm, just, I'm just trying to think of a Rich Mullen song. He said, the world can't stand what it cannot own and it can't own you because you did not have a home. The world can't stand what it cannot own and it can't own you because you did not have a home. If you put your values in this stuff... Sorry, I'm going to start pointing over here. If you put your values in this stuff, <laughs> then they're going to take it and they're going to own you. And they will own you. But if you put your treasure in heaven, they can't touch it. Your enemies can't get you. How about some more examples? Some people put their identity in, um, you know, who they are, their reputation. This is who I, I, I have a reputation, and I don't want anyone to ruin my reputation, and I don't want anyone to gossip about me, and I, don't, I don't want everyone to like me, and I don't want everyone to think I'm pretty, I want everyone to think I'm clever, I want everyone to think I'm cool. Believe it or not, a lot of people put their identity in those things, their Facebooks, you know, who, how many friends do I have, how many tweets do I get? What happens then? Oh, man, your enemy can control you. They're, gonna say, they're always going to say bad things about you. You're fat, you're ugly, no one likes you, you're stupid. They're going to taint your reputation, and do everything they can to, to push you down, ruin your career, ruin your future. And that's all your identity. Who am I? Who do people think I am? But if you believe what the Bible says, if you believe in the gospel, and the gospel is, is that you're the apple of his eye, 
and that your applause comes from heaven and that you, you, you really live for an audience of one. You've heard these things before. And you know that Jesus loves me and that nothing can separate me from the love of Jesus and that I am a prince or a princess and I have an inheritance in heaven. Then it doesn't matter what they say. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will not hurt you. That will be true if you know that only his word is what matters. The fickle words of the Facebook tweeters don't matter. Only his words. And then they'll come at you and say, well, you're fat. <laughs> and you'll say, he doesn't think so. Or maybe he does, but he still loves me. <laughs> you're stupid. You'll never amount to anything. Oh, that's not what he tells me. They can't touch. Your enemies can't touch you. And eventually, if we just continue to give more illustrations, some people put their value in their children. Some people put their value in their wives, whatever. If we just continue to roll with this, we'll see no enemy can get a hold on you if you truly do believe that he, your, your confidence is in Christ. You'll even get to a point to where they'll say, well, I'll take your life. My life is hidden in Christ. What if you got to a place where you could say like Paul, for me to die would be gain. And if I'm going to be alive, it's going to be more Jesus for me and you because <laughs> I'm going to preach it. Well, we're going to kill you. Do it. Do, your enemies are going to be so frustrated. They can't push your buttons. They can't control you because it's all up there. The enmity is destroyed. See, with this powerful, violent grace and gospel, enmity is destroyed. No one can get a foot on you. You could say, you can't touch this. Do, 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 do. You can't touch this. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Isn't that radical? Isn't that supposed to happen in your life? Why do you have enemies? Why do we have enemies? What are we forgetting? What are we missing? Where are we putting our value? Here's what, what I'd like for you to do um, this week. Um, have this discussion with yourself. <laughs> Or with your wife and your, or your husband or your neighbor or someone here in your community group, whatever. How do you need to activate this gospel power so that you can have rest from your enemies? And let me just give you a hint on how to discuss this question. I want you to be literal, not metaphorical. In other words, don't say, well, I need to not let my enemies get a foothold by putting my trust in Jesus. Don't say that. Mike already said that. You know what I mean? I want you to say, I hate Rachel. Rachel, she pushes my buttons. And, and what I need to do is stop letting her push my buttons because the way she pushes my buttons is by telling me that I'll never amount to anything and I now know that she's wrong. My professor in seminary would say, I want you to go inside the quotes. No one cares when you say, there's bad people out there that's done bad things to me. What they really want you to do is be national inquirer and say, Sheila stabbed me in the back, but they want the juicy gossip, okay? I'm not condoning gossip. I'm just saying, you got to get in the quotes. Because here's what happens as Christians. We say, yes, I need to trust Jesus more. And then we go to work and we want to punch everybody. <laughs> what we really need to do is say, I need to trust Jesus more over Bill. Because Bill ticks me off and I want to punch him. And the reason why I want to punch him is because he threatens me. And the reason why he threatens me is because I have not placed myself in Christ. I've actually allowed him to control me. And to destroy the enmity. And then, so I want you to have that conversation with yourself, with your spouse, with your community group this week. Really, get inside the quotes. But then, I want to say this. What happens when you have that kind of rest from your enemies? What kind of person are you? You're invincible. And 
you are now being able, you are now in a position to be used by God to show others how to find that same kind of rest. Jesus says, I've removed the enmity. No longer is this person who pushes your buttons your enemy. You now have the power not to let them get to you. So go to them and teach them this power. Go to them and teach them the good news. Go to them and teach them of my ways. Go to them and teach them this. Come to me, all you who long for rest, and I will give you rest even from your enemies. It's a powerful thing. Would you pray with me? Great God in heaven.